Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you to the nice folks at Skylight Books for hosting us here this evening. I, I, th- I took the mic off the stand because I'm going to walk around sort of Donahue style. Very professional. Where are you from? How's Detroit these days? Is it hot there? Um, thank you all so much for coming. And ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who don't know, sitting next to me is the lovely and talented Vu Tran. Uh, if you're just wandering into the store, uh, Vu is the author of uh, the novel Dragonfish. This is his first novel. Um, previous to this, he'd, he'd written primarily softcore pornography. Is that anything on Hardcore, cinema? Hardcore, really, but softcore is fine. Vu uh, has won every major writing award that you don't know about. Uh, he is the winner of the Whiting Prize. Uh, he is an o. Henry Prize winner. Um, he also is in Best American Mystery Stories. He's a teacher a professor at the University of Chicago. Um, I first met Vu, um, it was a swingers club, uh, quite frankly. The Green Door? Yeah, God. Crazy night. I thought it was a comic book store. Um, I first met Vu um, when I read his short story in the O. Henry Prize collection, and this was this is in like 2004. That was how we first met? Yeah. I thought it was for the Vegas Noir thing. No. Shit. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, it's been weird when you've pretended not to know me from that, but um, we'll go on with That's it. Right. Um, so, Vu and I, though, were both in the same anthology. We were both in Vegas Noir, which is um, one of those Akashic Noir series books. So, they have, you know, Vegas Noir, Boston Noir, Pacoima Noir. Pacoima's a little town in LA. <laughs> I did not so know that. It was going to be funnier when I said it out loud. Turns out it wasn't. Um, but Vu and I both had short stories in Vegas Noir. Uh, his story, This uh, or Any Desert, and my story was called Mitzvah. And we both turned our short stories into novels. Uh, wow. Mine was my novel, Gangsterland, and Vu's became Dragonfish. And, and I apologize for the, I guess, circle jerkedness of this, but. <laughs> His novel is fantastic. Thank you, Gang- sir. Gangsterland is fantastic. I appreciate it. Let's talk more about Gangsterland, if we could. Do you have any questions specifically, Lou, about sort of your favorite bits? Um, so we're going to talk a bit about the novel. I'm presuming that most of you haven't read the... Well, actually, let, how many of you have read the book thus far? Okay, so we won't go, give up any spoilers for, for the rest of you. Um, but he is magic, right? He's, he is a wizard. That's revealed dragon. pretty quickly. A dragon wizard. <laughs> If you don't know, this is a fantasy novel. Um, so this is Vu's first book, and it's, it, it takes place in Las Vegas. The main character is an Oakland cop, and he's come back to Vegas in search of uh, his missing ex-wife, whose name is Susie, um, who is Vietnamese. Um, that's, that's the basic page one of, of the book. Vu um, was going to read a bunch of the book, but I figured most of you really don't want to hear him read. Was it Just... A show of hands, no one wants to hear him read for 30 minutes, right? No, 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 they don't. 
<laughs> so nice. Oh, there's children here. I'm sorry. I'll stop swearing. I didn't oh, see children here. I forgot. I'm sorry. Can we stop recording? I'd like to <laughs> start that again. Rewind that. Um, so, Vu, let, let's talk a bit about, and then we'll, we'll have you read a little bit of, of the book uh, in just a second. Um, talk about the genesis. So, it, it, the book started as a short story, which is now chapter two of the book. Yes. Um, yes. At what point did you decide, I'm going to take this short story and, and turn it into a novel? Well, first of all, thank you everyone for coming out. And I, I know some of you, and it's so good to see you, and it's good to meet those of you I don't. But uh, thank you very much for coming out. Um, uh, what was the question? When, how, when did it, this, how, how did you, <laughs> how did you decide to turn the short story into a novel? Oh, yeah, well... The thing is, Jared Keene, the, the editor, asked me, um, called me up. I'd never talked to him before, and he very sheepishly... If you don't know the, the noir series, in each city, the editor asks you to, to write about a certain part of town, right? So uh, he very sheepishly asked me to do Chinatown <laughs> in Vegas, and uh, I didn't know it beyond, you know, the, the restaurants. So, um, but I decided to, to, to write, you know... Um, uh, I guess a story with, with a, a white protagonist because I, I kind of felt like I was kind of entering an alien world myself, really. Uh, and did he know you were not Chinese? <laughs> he did know that, uh, uh, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, the, so the, uh, it's basically the, the second chapter and the short story are, are very similar. I mean, it's expanded. And I guess the, the, the point at which I decided to turn into a novel. I was working on another novel, as we all do, a failed novel. And I was more than ready to put it aside and start on something new. And uh, the thing about this story, if you have read the second chapter, you know that there is a, a you know, excuse me, we just had dinner. We, we just so had a sorry. fantastic dinner. Uh, if you ever want to <laughs> wait 90 minutes for fish and chips, <laughs> I recommend the public house. <laughs> so good. Um, but there's a character in, in the second chapter and same in the, sec, uh, the original short story uh, who tells a story about his um, Vietnamese character about his experience escaping Vietnam and uh, when I was thinking about turning into a novel I realized that the I mean, it was a crime story, and but the crime narrative itself, I didn't feel like it, you know uh, it created enough complex space. You know, um, it didn't have enough uh, uh, potential, I think, for an entire novel. At least w what I was interested in writing. And it wasn't until I, I I I thought about that backstory, and I I then. Uh, kind of appropriate that story for this uh, female character, Susie, in the novel, that I realized I, I had something that I could work with because it, it, you know, it it brought a kind of emotional foundation that connected all the characters, all the main characters to each other, and uh, that's when I felt like I had something to work with. Before that, you know, I felt like I had a kind of you know pastiche of, of the crime narrative. And, and, and you didn't, you don't come yeah. from sort of a crime background. No, not at all. I mean, I've committed crimes. Right. But no, <laughs> but no. I mean, I, I've I've always loved noir. I mean, I I've loved noir cinema. I love. Uh, I hadn't read as much, you know, uh, crime fiction or noir fiction as I, uh, you know, obviously do now. But I've always been interested in that. So when Jared asked me, I said, "Oh hell yeah." You know, because uh, there had always been an element of mystery in all my stuff. You know, when I was writing, you know, quote unquote literary fiction, uh, I, I always loved plot. I always loved the the idea of, of uh, 
a question unraveling. And and so, yeah, I mean, to write in the genre was... But the thing was, is that in the short story, if you ever read it, it's, it's very, you know... Uh, one of the things I had to do when I started the novel was to just tone down all the kind of hard-boiled right. sarcasm. The, you know, again, it was very, it was very much a pastiche, and, and I didn't feel comfortable, especially with that emotional backstory, working in that vein. But, but it very much is a crime novel, you know, and I, I, well, I very much embraced it. I, I think it's sort of a crime novel in the way, and I was thinking about this actually today as I was as I was driving in. Um, is that it sort of follows in a line of crime fiction from The Quiet American to Dog Soldiers to, to oh, your book. Both um, great novels. If you've not read those books, um, this guy Graham Greene, he wrote The Quiet American. He was pretty good. And then Robert Stone, he wrote Dog Soldiers. He mm -hmm. was pretty good. Um, but all three of them have, are in a continuum of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, but also, it's literary fiction that is masking a larger social novel, which is really what you're writing yeah, about, to yeah. the immigrant experience. Yeah, you know, The Quiet American, you know, is a wonderful book. It's one of my favorite novels, but it's a problematic novel. If, if you've ever read it, it's about, you know, Graham Greene is English, and, and you know, it's very much a, a novel about American naivete. Um, and it's, it's wonderful, but it's a thriller. Um, and a crime novel. But, you know, one of the problematic things about this, and um, uh, Vit Nguyen, who's here, uh, uh, agrees with me, I do know this, is that there's a, a Vietnamese female character who's basically a cipher, mm -hmm. who is uh, an object of, of desire, uh, but no more than that. And and it's, it's, you know, you can't kind of escape that, that issue in the novel. And, you know, one of the things I felt like I really, it wasn't like a, you know, a kind of like a, a response to a novel like Quiet American. But, because that book, I mean, I, I admire it. It's, I, I, for me, it is, you know, Vietnam War literature, I think it's my favorite uh, novel in that kind of, you know, uh, genre, I guess. But I knew that if I was to write this novel and I had that kind of like, you know, people call it femme fatale, but it's it's just that kind of mysterious female figure that that I had to give her flesh. Mm -hmm. I had to give her a, a voice. Uh, and especially if she's Vietnamese, uh, I didn't want to kind of... I felt like I had to address that in, 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 in some way. Uh, and I hope I did. But but that novel was actually very important to me for, for various reasons, but that's one of them. Well, and I, I think, you know, that's the challenge of what you're writing about is to bring... I think what Graham Greene did well is he brought literary fiction into a, uh, to a spy novel, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're bringing literary fiction into a crime novel. Um, you know, a, a fairly which many people have. Right. I'm not doing anything new whatsoever. No, we're going to talk about that. Close the doors. <laughs> <laughs> you suck, Vu. We're all here to tell you you're a fraud. Um, but you know, I, it hurts when friends say that. You know, <laughs> what, can you imagine uh, the book signing as intervention, or everyone's here at the Barnes and Noble? <laughs> Excellent. You've got a problem. Um, but I, I think the, the fascinating thing for me with the book and just with your, your own story is that you're bringing a lot of your own personal history to it as well. You're a first-generation yeah. American. Yeah. Um, you, you had that, you know, your father escaping from Vietnam in, mm -hmm. in the 1970s, you getting to Oklahoma, of all mm -hmm. places. Yeah. Um, so while the story itself is, is obviously all fiction... Um, there's clearly a part of you that lives inside of it. Yes, and and it's it's like you, I know most writers 
uh, or at least if you're like me, you get uncomfortable with this because people always are interested, you know, when they talk to fiction writers about how much of their own autobiography is in right. the book. And so, uh, so I, I, I just should qualify in that, you know, the, the basic premise is from my life, but everything else is invented. Um, uh, which is also to say that, you know, uh, I, I thought that this was something that I really wanted to investigate about myself. But I didn't want to bring that much of myself to the book. So, but yeah, it's a part of my life that is very meaningful to me, and it's meaningful because I don't have any memory of it, you know. So I had to investigate. I had to, I mean, I was five when I, uh, my, my mom took, well, basically, my, my father uh, fought with the South Vietnamese uh, Air Force with the Americans. So they... You know, as soon as Saigon fell uh, in April of 75, he had to leave. And he left before I was born. Uh, so, and uh, almost four or five months later, I was born. And I didn't have him. And that's an element that I bring to Susie's backstory. Um, which is, uh, the other th- element is that my mother, when I was five in 1980, took my sister and I, excuse me, and we escaped by boat and spent seven days at sea. That's in the book. Um, and, and it was we, basically like a Norwegian cruise. Absolutely. Uh, uh, no jazz band, though. Um, <laughs> the Bali High Lounge was not quite <laughs> as exciting as you think. We were also very lucky. I mean, uh, compared to the thousands and thousands of Vietnamese who, you know, uh, maybe many of you know this, but like, you know, uh, Thai pirates, you know, rape, pillaging, drowning, uh, starvation. We were incredibly lucky. And, uh, and after like about six days, we landed. Uh, we s- landed in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, and uh, they put us on uh, uh, an island called Pulau Bidong, which uh, Survivor. There was a season of Survivor there. Um, I've watched every season of Survivor, which is why I'm telling you this. Um, it just keeps getting better. Yeah, yeah. But we were there for four months, and then my father, who had settled in Oklahoma, how did he, you get to Oklahoma? Catholic priest. Ah. Only recent. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And he sponsored us, and then I came uh, September 12th, uh, five days before my fifth birthday, I came to the States, and I grew up in Oklahoma. Um, now, uh, everything before that, I mean, that's like, again, the basic premise of, of Susie's backstory is, is very is similar to that. But there's a lot of other things that, that you know, that she suffered and, and that she did that, I mean, I, I mean that's all invented. Good. That's <laughs> yeah. A, that's yeah. a good sign. Um, the, the choice to write about Vegas, and obviously you lived in Vegas for, was it six years? Seven years. Seven years you lived in Vegas. Um, to write a crime novel in Las Vegas focusing on the Vietnamese community. Yeah. Um, There's not, I I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this. not a big Vietnamese community. Not a big Vietnamese community because you had to go to Chinatown to write about the (laughs) Vietnamese community. Yeah, yeah. And if you guys go to Las Vegas, I know some of you like to go to Las Vegas, if you leave the Strip for a little while, Chinatown is literally a block in Las Vegas of just restaurants on Spring Mountain. It's very small. That's Um, why I went underground. I mean, literally, you know. So the choice, though, to write a novel about the Vietnamese community in Las Vegas, um, you know, that's, that's, that's taking a big risk because you're, you're asking people who typically buy these books to expand their palette way beyond what they normally do. Was that something you thought so, about? Yeah. No, I didn't because, um, honestly, I, I didn't really think about, you know, who I was potentially catering to because it's like and many of you guys are i know here are writers you you can't do that you can't think about that you can only think about 
what is convincing in the world that you created, what's interesting and convincing in the world you've created. And so that was the only thing on my mind. Um, I mean, I would be lying if I didn't, you know, wonder sometimes how how readily people would go in the direction that I was going. But I did know that it's a direction that they probably hadn't even heard about. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, that was the other thing. I felt like this is, oh, this is something that I haven't read, so maybe I should, you know, uh, explore this with, with depth, you know. Um, yeah. In terms of writing about Vegas, um, and I think you do this extraordinarily well, um, you know, it's easy to slide into cliche, right, when writing about Las Vegas. Yeah, Because absolutely. it is a cliche. Like, it's, yeah. it's the, there's a giant Petri dish filled with urine. Yeah. <laughs> And if, you're lucky. if you're lucky, if you're lucky, and that's 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 the that's the part of Vegas that most people know about, the yes. part that's on the Strip. Yes. But you go off the Strip and yes. and into the actual city itself. How did you stay away from sort of the easy cliche, the sort of Rat Pack vibe, and and focus on sort of this smaller ecosystem? That's a good question because it was on my mind a lot. I mean, you know, Vegas is one of those cities. Maybe New York is the other one where most Americans have an idea of, of this city without even having been there. Um, uh, if you watch enough TV or movies, you have an idea of Vegas, and it's a very marketed idea, um, and it's a very um, it's a very narrow idea. But it's also the truth in many ways, and so that's one of the things I I, I decide to do is that I can't just avoid the stereotypes or the cliches. I had to embrace them in a way. Um, I did know that I didn't want to have a stripper. Um, well, though it's okay to have a stripper if you have right. a Vegas. Right, if you novel. are a stripper, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're not, we're not um, stripper shaming you. Yeah. <laughs> Who would want to, right? But no, it, it's it's the I you know I I just thought that again if if the world is convincing enough and interesting enough that that the stereotypes will dissolve in some ways that that the reader will look past them and I hope that that that's what happens for readers in the book. Um, you know, so yeah, there are certain, like, you know, the very first chapter of the novel is, is a very kind of like, in many ways, a very familiar crime novel scene. Mm -hmm. And there are also other scenes about Vegas that, um, you know, it, it talks about the lights. It talks about uh, 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 the mirrors. It talks about things that people do associate. It talks about uh, the money. Um, but uh, but again, if, if your characters are, are have depth and they're they're complex and they're compelling, it doesn't doesn't fucking matter. Excuse me. Uh, um, there's children here. No. I know. I've been earlier. They're in the front. I keep forgetting. Normally, I'm the one who swears. <laughs> now I know. Now I know how awkward it is for the other people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's actually true. Uh, well, you know what? Why don't you read a little bit from the first page, and then we'll, okay. we'll, we'll talk some more so the folks yeah. that are just walking in can hear um, how you destroy cliché. Well, this isn't, uh, this isn't a passage uh, that takes place in Vegas. Um, well, that, that, sort of, that, I mean, that sort of screws it then. Yeah, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay. just to ruin the night. They won't know. Um, these are uh, letters that um, a character writes to a, uh, another person. Our first night at sea, you cried for your father. You buried your face in my lap and clenched the fist to your ear as if to shut out my voice. I reminded you that we had to leave home and he could not make the trip with us. He would catch up with us soon. 
but you kept shaking your head. I couldn't tell if I was failing to comfort you if you were already at four years old, refusing to believe in lies. You turned away from me, so alone in your distress that I no longer wanted to console you. I had never been able to anyway. Only he could soothe you. But why was I, even now, not enough? Did you imagine that I too would die without him? Eventually you drifted off to sleep, along with everyone around us. People were lying side by side, draped across each other's legs, sitting and leaning against what they could. In the next nine days there would be thirst and hunger, sickness, death. But that first night we had at last made it out to sea, all 90 of us. And as our boat bobbed along the waves, everyone slept soundly. I sat awake just beneath the gunwale with the sea spraying the crown of my head, and I listened to the boat's engine sputtering us toward Malaysia and farther and farther away from home. It was the sound of us leaving everything behind. The truth was that I, too, thought only of your father. On the morning we left, I held you in the darkness before dawn and lingered with him as others called for us in the doorway. He kissed your forehead as you slept on my shoulder. Then he looked at me, placed his hand briefly on my arm before passing it over his shaven head. I could see the sickness in his face, the uncertainty, too, clouding his always calm demeanor. He had already said goodbye in his thoughts and did not know now how to say it again in person. I did not want to go, but he had forced me. For her, he said, and looked at you one last time. Then he pushed me out the door. If you ever read this, you should know that everything I write is necessary to explain what I later did. You are a woman now, and you understand that I write this not as your mother, but as a woman too. On that first night, as I watched your chest rise and fall with the sea, I wished you away. I prayed to God that I might fall asleep, and that when I awoke, you would be gone. So. Oh, that's great. That, that, now you clap. So obviously, you have, you have some pretty tactile memories from being on the boat, or are you just making it up? I don't have any memory of it, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Is it unfortunate? I mean, do you want to have that memory? Uh, you know, I don't know, honestly. It's like, it's one of those things that, it's kind of like writing about Las Vegas. I realized that, you know, I only had 60 pages when I left Las Vegas, and I didn't return for, for about four years until I had finished it. And so I wrote the bulk of the novel without being in Las Vegas, not being able to go to this street or that street to check on things. And I actually think that was a blessing, whatever you want to call it, because you are, uh, in many ways, I was writing about the city emotionally, not factually or in concrete terms. And so I, I did kind of the same thing with, with these sections of the book about, you know, uh, uh, the refugee camp and, and the boat experience. Um, you know, I, I researched it. I got the facts. I got certain, you know, and I, I included certain facts that were necessary. But the most important thing was to get the emotional uh, narrative down. And I felt I always had that. I don't think, I don't know if it's like uh, something that you just um, carry with you, whether you remember it or not. I feel like it, it does. Well, I mean, the, and I had my mother's stories. Right. I, you know, I was, yeah. was going to ask you is that well, there's two things that that they say now that maybe trauma affects your DNA. That yeah, I, yeah. That even if you don't remember it, yeah. it's still it's still inside of you. Um, I mean, that's just science. <laughs> that's, a, that's Marco Rubio talking. You know, I don't. It's, it's not Marco. Rubio. Marco Rubio didn't say any of that for the podcast. Just to fact check it. Um, <laughs> He, he doesn't believe any of that. Um, but, you know, you, you, you were there. You experienced it even if you don't yeah. remember it. You have your mother's 
memories of it. Mm -hmm. You have your family's emotions from it. But isn't it your job just in general to imagine what a person would feel like anyway? Absolutely. Because their stories are, are almost irrelevant. In many ways, yeah. You know, it's like, I think a lot of our moms, if you're a writer, uh, I think a lot of our your moms have said this. You know, you need to write my story one of these days. Yeah, you know? I wrote that and, story. Right? I mean, and, and my mom did, said the same thing, and I always told her, you know, well, you wouldn't want me to. No. You know? And I wouldn't want me to because the story would not be very good. Because There'd be a lot of you screaming, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this, in many ways, this was what I did instead, you know. Um, uh, I don't know if, if, if trauma stays with you. I really don't. And I don't know how one would, I guess a scientist could prove that, but I don't know how to prove it for myself other than to say that, that I think, you know, I mean, you live, a long, you live long enough where you grow up in the shadow of that experience. And, and again, your, your parents telling you stories or reminding you, um, uh, my cousin is here, and I'm sure uh, her mom has reminded her of that. I haven't seen my cousin in so long. Where is she? Were, oh, she's she waving like in the back. It's a lovely dress she has on also. She's it's a nice literally, dress. literally this short when I last saw her. Um, you want us to leave? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have any simmering anger towards your cousin, do you? No, no, okay. no, nothing but love. Um, but yeah, you you live in the you live in the emotional shadow of that. Uh, Maxine Han Kingston. I'm totally butchering the quote, but in the Woman Warrior from I think what was it 79 or something like that. You know, uh, again, I'm very butchering the poetry of her lines here in her memoir. But she says, you know, the 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 parents of the first generation build this world of memories around around their children and force them to live there mm-hmm. whether they want to or not and they don't know that they're doing this because who wouldn't you don't you you want to bring the world that you left with you it's a very human thing to do so i can't blame you know uh, immigrant parents for doing this um, but uh it has its Effects both negative and positive. Positive, negative for me, I could go on for hours. <laughs> but positive is that it, you know, it, I, I think I, I, it was giving me access to this stuff that I don't remember, you know. Um, and again, you, you just feel it, you know. There is a, um, you know, it, it, I, I, there is a kind of sound that the Vietnamese make when they they, you know, call someone. Uh, so if I'm calling my mother, you say ma ơi, ma ơi, ơi, is that, and that is a very emotional sound. Mm-hmm. Like you do it uh, again? Ơi, ma ơi. If I was calling you right. and I loved you, and I don't, but <laughs> if I did, I would say tot ơi. You know, and 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 it's a very, it's a very. I mean, I don't know if you guys can feel it, but like, I can't say that without feeling a little emotional. Right. And you, you carry that around whether you forget the language or not, whether you know your culture or not. You you carry that around, your your in your subconscious or consciously, and and I feel like you know having that. You know, I was—I always had that, especially when I was writing Susie's sections mm-hmm. of the novel. I always had that, uh, and I think it was essential, at least for this book and for me. What about for for you the the opposite, which is writing about a white cop? Now, you've you've not uh, worked in law enforcement, I know. Um, my sister is a cop, though. Your sister's a cop? You didn't know this? I didn't know that. Yeah. Do My sister. Could and... she fix a ticket? <laughs> in Dallas. 
Oh, if I'm ever in Dallas, in Texas. I'm already screwed. Yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> they don't let Jews into Texas, so I don't have to worry about that. No, my sister and her boyfriend are both uh, uh, Texas uh, police officers. Uh, really? She works. Uh, ne- she's a negotiator, and uh, she used like, to be like in, a Kevin Spacey. Yeah, she used to be in narcotics. Her boyfriend is in the SWAT team. So I—that was my research. Yeah, yeah. I, I called wow. Uh, so I thought you knew this. Theoretically, if I were to have a situation with a courier in Texas, I can talk to your sister. I can, I can make the problem disappear. Uh, that would be nice. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's that's sort of fascinating. I mean, I I don't. I have a hard time sort of conceptualizing these things because all my family are, are other fat Jewish writers. Um, <laughs> You're Jewish? Yeah, I know. It's weird. I look Italian. Um, <laughs> were, were the arts a big thing growing up, or, or are you the are you the thumb? I, I am. I, I am the only one. I, I had an, I believe, an aunt who 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 dabbled in painting but all of my cousins are either in you know computers uh my brother works for apple that's a good job though he does comedy which is weird um (laughs) he's i'm very proud of him yeah yeah yeah, he does like improv and stuff yeah yeah i'm very proud of him actually do you have any mimes in the family (laughs) i don't know mimes cops and uh and comics but everyone is a very kind of professional field i i'm the only one uh in the arts and uh you know i mean yeah i mean uh, so no, I kind of had to cultivate that sensibility on my own, which was fine. And you know, it's the only thing I knew. So I mean, uh, maybe I'd be different if someone, you know, uh, um, it, there were always people cultivating it. Your friends, your teachers, and everything. So I shouldn't say that. But at least at home, you know, uh, there was never that much encouragement. There was pride to a degree, mm-hmm. but but not that much encouragement. So I kind of like found things on my own: movies, books, you know. Um, Whatever you know, I uh, music even. Uh, so I've always been kind of like a solo <laughs> explorer of the arts uh, up until the time I got even in college, you know. But at, you know, you love it enough, you know. That's all that matters. I've never wanted to be anything but a writer, so uh, it didn't change anything. When did you start? First grade. First grade. First do you remember grade, your yeah. first story? I do. I do. It was for reading class uh, in first grade write a story and I just remember how much I enjoyed it and I remember the only story I remember and the only thing I remember about that story is like it was one of those endings where the character wakes up right uh, and it was a dream so it was a very bad story well it, it, it could get you into most MFA programs in the country <laughs> yeah I've heard I've heard if there was also someone who dies of yeah. cancer in it that would also be that be clutch but uh, uh, sorry, to, you, you you fell on your job, Todd. You were going to ask me about the white officer, and, and I do want to answer. Oh, right. Point. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, the thing, and I, th- and I think what you want to ask me, Todd, this should uh, be good. I'm doing your job for you, is is Which was going to ask you as my Vu, was it life? difficult to write from the point of view of a, well, what was your question? Though? That that was it. I mean, yeah. you're you're writing from the point of view of of two things that you're not uh, a woman yeah. and a white don't cop. Know. Um, well, you know, the, the, I want to answer this question because I think it's it's important to me that I I I thought of it this way, is that I very much feel like um, you know I grew up in Oklahoma. I I only knew like two Vietnamese friends. I only had two Vietnamese friends uh, growing up uh, in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, right out of Tulsa, and home of uh, of Troy Aikman. Really, I think so. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. Henrietta, Oklahoma, yeah. He's the one. And I, uh, of course, I always feel like an, I, I felt like an outsider. I felt like on the periphery of things. And I felt that the, the, the world that I grew up in was in many ways kind of, you know, was not always completely accessible to me. And I, I think most people feel this way, whether you're an immigrant or not. We ha have some sense of outsidership, especially artists. Um, but I, I felt it keenly. Even though I had a pretty, you know, relatively happy childhood, but I felt it keenly, and and in many ways that, you know, yeah, he's white, you know, uh, and he's a police officer, but um, you know, he's a character that is entering an alien world, whether it's Las Vegas, the Vietnamese community, or a marriage with a Vietnamese woman, uh, and it's a world that is was not entirely accessible to him, and do you think? And so I, I felt very, you know, close to him in that way. Do you think because Vegas is such a transient place, it made it easier to do those things? Like, there's, sure, there's yeah. no community there that you think, oh, well, that's the native community of Los Angeles. Exactly, Vegas. exactly. Uh, and even the kids who grew up, grow up there, they're, they're, they're a certain breed of kids. Right. You know, they, there is a trans. Uh, yeah, that. Yeah, the, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, the the, the thing about Vegas, uh, especially if if you've lived there for any number of years, that you do feel a sense of, um, you know, everything is new. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the only thing that will never be kind of you know bulldozed is the stratosphere because it's so damn big, and it's impossible to get there. Yeah. But but you know, soon enough, no matter what Those the history should, no matter what the history is, it's going to go down, and something new and shinier is going to go up, and and that's just the character of the city. Whether no matter what you think of that, and I think that's reflected in the people as well. Mm -hmm. um, and in many ways, that's a great place to hide, uh, or that's a great place to 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 kind of go and not feel responsible for presenting your story to everyone unless you want to. And and in many ways, I, I felt like that was a great place to, to set the novel, an immigrant novel. Because uh, I feel like immigrants, you know, immigrants, I think, uh, are more than willing to share their stories. But there are a lot of immigrants who, who have stories that they don't want to share, to their children even. Mm -hmm. And I've always found it interesting the reasons why people withhold their stories and um and i felt that all worked together well mm -hmm. you know I, I agree i mean i, I think you know, the interesting thing about las vegas for me i mean and why I, I write about it a lot too is that that whole sense of what happens in vegas stays in vegas there's an ethos of criminality born into the tourism bureau's statement you know <laughs> yeah. and yes yeah, right I, and before it was what happens in vegas stays in vegas the 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 slogan of the city was Vegas is for families, and then yeah. that stopped yeah. because, like, you, no one wants to go to a strip club where your sister is. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, not that my sister's stripping anymore. Um, <laughs> anymore. <laughs> but I, so in that way, Vegas, I think, really was the best and easiest place to to put a story like this. But I can't imagine that you're going to keep writing about Vegas, or do you think you will? I don't know. I, I don't know what I'll write about next. I mean, I. I, I, I I don't have a kind of trajectory in mind. I just know that, you know, I kind of wait for that story to come, whatever it is. And I might write about Vegas again. I mean, I, it's, the, the town is endlessly interesting to me. The most interesting thing about the town, though, is something that, uh, excuse me, a former teacher of mine, Dave Hickey, kind of argued this point that Vegas is one of the more honest towns in the country mm -hmm. because it 
it is it's honest about how fake it is you know you, you go to new york new york it's like no one thinks it's actually new york and it knows that uh it knows that that really big lion is 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 you know um it celebrates its uh superficiality and and i feel like there's there is something very honest about it because other cities in this country uh you know there are many schools that pretend to be harvard right mm-hmm. but they don't they don't acknowledge that uh there are many cities that try to be new york but they don't acknowledge that and and vegas is one of the few if only the, the only city that totally embraces how fake it is <laughs> and, and 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 when it cheats you have to spend a lot of time in la yeah. and when it cheats you <laughs> but la sometimes denies it right in Vegas, when Vegas cheats you, it cheats you honestly because you should know that the odds are against you. Mm-hmm. Everyone should know. They, they, it's up there. It's, it, well, there's, there's but, a great but, moment yeah. in the book where where Robert is at the casino and he's talking to um, the bartender That's right. about poker, about the difference basically between losing in poker and losing at table games. Yeah. And in poker, you lose honestly. Yes. Um, that it's not rigged against you. Well, that's one of those, the kind of cliches of poker. I'm obsessed with poker, um, and one of the cliches about poker is, you know, is that you know poker players are, are dishonest. They lie. You know, they, they win by cheating. And 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 poker players in general, they want to beat you honestly. Um, and and there is an element of um, uh, of a sense that that you know, if you're lucky, you create your own luck. There's, it's very much a kind of um, What's a good way to describe it? But I mean, whatever. It's 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 a game that 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 you know uh, honestly tries to lie to you. You know, every story you're telling is a lie. Um, but there's such an honesty to it because you don't want to win. I don't want to win at poker by cheating. Mm-hmm. There's no satisfaction in that. You know, and I, I kind of love that ethos. You know, I, I I love that that idea, and and I think a lot of poker players and a lot of people in Vegas do. Not everyone, of course. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few people who are yeah, happy yeah. to cheat you. Um, well, I'm sure that folks in the audience have some questions and that they'd like to buy books as well. But let's let's have them ask questions first. Sure. And they, then they, 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 we'll they sell the like books, it. and you'll sign them, and then they'll put them on eBay. Yeah. Your cousin will make fifty dollars on your book. Yeah. There you go. That's your future. There All right, you if you have a question, raise your hand. I will point at you and you will ask it. We can suggest questions. We, yes. There's oh, always I, an awkward silence. Let, let me get it started with quickly. Um, Vu, top five Depeche Mode songs. Go. <laughs> oh, this is good. This is good. Oh, well, uh, Strange Love. Strange Love, okay. Strange Love, uh, Never Let Me Down Again. Ooh. Um, Not a good song. Oh, I, come on. I'm just saying. Uh, Somebody? Oh. Somebody, that's a good one. Well, Violator, the whole album is, is a, you know, uh, uh, World in My Eyes. Yes. <laughs> oh, you're going deep track. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, was that five? That was five. The uh, whole Violator album. Wow. There you go. There you go. 1993 was a big year for Vutran. Yes, yes. <laughs> All the people around my age will know, yes. Blasphemous Rumors. Yes, ma'am. So, did you have another title before you come up with Dragon? I did. I did. You know, the short story was called This or Any Desert. Uh, this I always have to repeat it because that's one of the reasons they changed it because I always have to repeat it when I tell people. This or Any Desert was the the title for the novel uh, up until the editing process, and my uh, my editor 
Can you think of another title? <laughs> and I couldn't. Or any other. Yeah, for like a couple of weeks, I could not. I, I came up with all these horrible. I'm, I'm horrible at titles. So finally, she, she suggested Dragonfish. And I actually balked at first because. I know it's very. You get very sensitive when you're at that stage. You know the cover. I didn't want red and yellow, and they gave me a fucking red and yellow cover. I like it now, but I also dragon. You know the. You know, it, I, I don't know. I was sensitive to the idea of of uh, of the book. Anything is felt that felt generically Asian about it. You know what I mean. Um, but uh, it had a nice ring to it, and uh, it takes it's, it's in reference to a fish that that one of the characters smuggles and, and illegally sells. Um, and I actually I actually didn't think of this at the time. It's one of those things you, you don't try to. It's not a good idea to think too much meaning, especially in the titles. But so this is only in, in uh, afterwards that you know dragonfish uh, Asians believe that it you know. Brings good fortune, uh, uh, keeps evil away, and brings the family together. And, and I love the fact that none of that happens in the novel. <laughs> you know, well, spoiler alert, Boo. They haven't read oh, the book okay. yet. All right. But I appreciated that irony uh, in retrospect. So I, I'm good with the title now. But th- that was the original one, though. And this or any desert is a great title. But I could see for a book where that you say, "What's your book?" Called it this or yeah. Well, you know, they want to market it in a certain way, and this or any desert doesn't sound like that book right. that they want to market. I think publishers. What do they know? You know. I I, I oh, Jesus. <laughs> publishers in the room. <laughs> oh, is that Dan? That is Dan. Yeah. Oh yeah, Dan. That's Vu Vu Dan. Pardon us, everyone. Well, you also realize that you got to pick your battles, right? And this was not a, a terribly. You'd think the title would be, but. Um, you know, I, there are more important things to me, you know, mm-hmm. like the content of the book. So when, it, when you wanted it to be a pop-up book, I mean, that was weird. And, I mean, that will be, when the movie comes out, they'll do a pop-up version. I hope so. That would be hope nice. So. What was your title? Uh, this or Any Desert. Yeah. You may. Go ahead. So, um... I understand there's an interracial relationship. That's right. I'm very conscious as a citizen of the immigrant experience, and I'm aware of cultures that go through significant trauma. And you may find yourself mm-hmm. on a bus in a very democratic situation with someone whose life experience has been embraced in every horror and trauma imaginable. And they might be really sitting there with threads of sanity, but they're um, gently weaving together and healing themselves. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the immigrant experience and interracial relations, especially interface with white, entitled um, American... Wow. Especially Las Vegas, which is kind of the ever-eternal, you know, no history and complete newness. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if you think of those issues or how you... Well, you know, there's so many things I could say about that. I guess, you know, you know, there's a section in the in in this the second chapter where one of the Vietnamese characters tells the Robert, the white protagonist, that you know, uh, I can't even quote my own book, but his basic I, I you know his belief is that you know the idea of of, of America as this great melting pot is. Is uh, not so much alive, but it's 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 I- way too idealistic for him. That in many ways, you know, uh, people end up going back to to where they belong, uh, in one way or another. Um, 
I don't necessarily believe that. I, I feel like if I do believe anything, I do believe that the melting pot unites us as much as it divides us. Uh, I have a sense like in 25 years, especially, uh, and I have no proof of this, but who needs proof, right? I do have a sense. I mean, I do actually, the, you know, I think in 2010, the census said that 28% that of Asians marry out, <laughs> which is the, the highest percentage of any, uh, any race, or white as well. And, um, and I, I, I can't see it not increasing that number. But I don't necessarily think of it, I mean, positive, negatively, I think... At least, I'll, I'll just put it this way, at least I think in literature it'll create a lot of ambiguity, a lot of good ambiguity, because, I, you know, I, it'll create as much conflict as, you know, it'll de- the melting pot unites us as much as it, or actually, let me put it this way, it divides us as much as it unites us. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, though, at least for art. I think that kind of, you know, ambiguity is good for art. Um, that's where all the good stuff is, the stuff that, that can't be resolved and is indeterminate. And, and nothing is, is, I think, more ambiguous when you kind of have um, a liminal existence. When you're, you, you're, did you just say liminal? I did, indeed. Uh, this is well, the Chico Kakatani level <laughs> shit you got going on. I didn't limit. But, <laughs> but like being in between things, being uncertain about being in between, mm-hmm. I think that is the stuff of great art. And... and I mean, I don't know if I'm answering your question. There's so many ways to, to answer it. But I do think that that, that is interesting to me. But, and it definitely isn't, uh, you know, I don't have a very uh, strictly I- idealistic and positive idea of the melting pot. Um, I don't believe what my character believes. I don't believe that completely. But I, I do think it's as problematic as it is, uh, um, you know, a good thing. Right. How do you feel about fondue restaurants called the Melting Pot? You think? <laughs> there is some. <laughs> you know, yeah. There was a whole chain of them back in the day. Yes, David. Uh, I have a writer's question. I yeah. I a short story, but just looking at the book, I just wonder how it evolved. I see the sections in the, in the second person that uh, you suggested might be letters. Yes. And then you're writing from different points of view in the first person. Did you know you'd be writing... Different, different points of view, and how did that also come together? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I had a really very like five-page short story, which is called Woman at Sea, and it was about a, a, it was the same basic premise, but it was the woman writing to her sister about this experience on the boat, and I realized, and if you want to talk like, you know, writer crap <laughs> it was, it's weird I realized that that you know I was writing a first person you know the, the Robert the police officer and when you write in the first person it's it's almost directional it's going in one way and when I, I wrote the letters I felt that it was going in another way because she was writing to a character that was not in the book in the crime narrative and when I the really the novel really came together when and I'm giving something away here but when you realize that she's writing to the daughter that she abandoned 20 years ago and and she is a character in the crime narrative and that's when in many ways the two narratives were facing each other if that makes sense and it was only then that I felt like symmetrical you know, emotionally too, and that's when the novel came together for me. Um, uh, when those narratives were facing each other, it's a weird thing. You just feel it when you're writing that that things, in many ways, when they're 
unless it's intentional and, it, and it's going at cross purposes, it doesn't feel right. And that's when it felt right. I hope that makes sense. Well, I think the interesting thing is that there's that very large section, part two, basically. Yeah. Um, where it, it, you've been in a, a pretty standard noir novel, and then it becomes, for a big chunk of pages, this letter that she's writing that tells... Yeah the whole backstory, where it stops being a crime novel. Yeah. For I think it confuses a lot of people. <laughs> I, I, but, I mean, it, it's wonderful writing, and it's, a, it's yeah. a great part of the story, but I imagine that if you go out and you pick up, you know, your average crime novel, and then you, you find that section, you're going to be like, oh, this is something I'm not familiar with. Yeah. But, you know, that narrative had to be there because mm-hmm. that was the emotional backbone of the entire novel. Without that, the crime narrative, uh, you know, it, it loses yeah. so many layers and it loses a kind of, you know, uh, a kind of psychological and emotional directive, you know, because uh, in many ways that whole crime plot is moving in the direction of the things you find out in the letters. Right. And, and, and so, and you know, I don't know if anyone is a fan of Marilyn Robinson, but one of the books, you know, I, I, I had a lot of books on my, my desk while I was writing this. One is uh, Wind of Bird Chronicle. Uh, one is Quiet American by Graham Greene. Uh, uh, and, and the other one is, is Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, which is a very, you know, uh, it's a book about an old, you know, reverend who's writing letters to his young son because he knows he'll die before his, his son grows old. And uh, every time I wrote the letters in this book, I, I opened up Gilead to kind of like, you know, <laughs> get some of Marilyn Robinson's <laughs> voice and, and the humanity in, in that book into, into these, this part of, the, of my book. Um, and yeah, the, and weirdly enough, that section came to me most quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, that seems like it's your easy wheelhouse. It's the literary fiction that I you I guess so, you yeah. Know. Yeah. All right, one last question. Yes, cousin. Uh, hey, cuz. Uh, hey. <laughs> I'm curious because we grew up differently. Um, you said you felt like an outsider. Yeah. You grew up in Oklahoma, and from what I know, you lived a number of years in Vegas and now Chicago. Yeah. Um, did you ever try to find a sense of belonging in No, I was very bad about that. You know, um, I don't know why. Maybe... Because of the way I grew up, I just felt more comfortable around, you know, people who were not, you know, uh, who didn't look like me. I don't know. Um, well, I, I do know. I think that was part of it. I was more, I, you know, I, you know, I'm only recently. I mean, I, I found a group of Vietnamese friends in Chicago who are artists, and it's so wonderful to be around them. And I, it's so weird. It's, I'm, I'll be 40 this month, and this is the first time I've had a big group of Vietnamese friends. Um, I've been a bad Vietnamese person in many ways. I know I avoided it. Is it is getting dark. It's, yeah, here we go. Like, close the doors again. Oh, I'm going to start crying. <laughs> oh, yeah. You've also been a terrible joke. You had to go there, cuz. <laughs> Our family is big. Um... <laughs> Well, let's go ahead and stop talking. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, this is Vu Tran. This is his first novel, Dragon Thank you so Fish. much for coming out. Thank you, everybody, for coming to Skylight. Thank Vu, you, Todd. My pleasure. Vu will sign copies for you now. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.